Welcome to Canadian Equities. Thank you for spending time with us in our bi-weekly podcast series, where we spend 35 minutes with top business leaders and explore how they think about investment opportunities, capital allocation, and the macro environment in which they operate. Hopefully after listening to our podcast, we will have contributed to your investment process and have helped you better identify the characteristics of the next big compounder. This podcast is brought to you by Acumen Capital Partners, Canada's leading small cap investment dealer that is proudly based in Calgary, Alberta. Welcome to Canadian Equities with Acumen Capital Partners. I'm your host, Robert Cooper. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Arjun Murthy. Arjun is over 30 years as an equity research analyst, senior advisor and board member with global experience covering traditional energy, clean tech and new energy technologies. The bulk of his Wall Street career was at Goldman Sachs, where he retired as a partner in 2014. He recently unretired to join Veritin, an energy research strategy and investing firm. Arjun publishes Super Spiked, a Substack blog focused on the messy energy transition era. He's on the board of ConocoPhillips, a senior advisor at Warburg Pincus, and on the advisory boards for ClearPath and the Center on Global Energy Policy. Arjun, thanks so much for joining us today. Robert, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So before we get going, I wanted to bring attention to your blog, Superspite, which I think is among the best energy writing on the web these days. But that's more Arjun 2.0. You had a career before that. Why don't you talk about what you did previously and how you got here? Yeah, thank you, Robert. And you, you went through my background, so I'll be brief here. But, you know, I spent uh, over 20 years as a basically a sell-side equity research analyst. I was on the buy side briefly at J.P. Morgan for four years in the late 90s and started at a boutique investment bank in Denver, Petrie Parkman. But the bulk of my career at Goldman and, you know, covered the North American major oils, EMPs, really enjoyed covering the Canadian larger companies, Suncor, Canadian Natural, Synovus, and, and the lot. Uh, and at various times did look at South America, Brazil in particular, uh, also led our global energy team and also ran research towards the end of it. But I still identify, it's been 31 years now, as an equity research analyst. That is at my core and at my heart of what I love to do. And while I've been doing sort of board and advisory work for a big chunk of the last nine years since retiring from Goldman, uh, as you noted, I did recently kind of, quote, unretire to join Veritin which is a Houston-based firm. I'm in the, the New York City area, but it's a Houston-based firm that I might call energy consultancy and strategic advisory for uh, you know for traditional and newer companies. And we also have an investing fund, but it's that, it's that looking at publicly traded companies that I've always loved to do. And uh, Canada has always been a special place in my heart as well. So again, thank you for having me on your show today. Well, that's tremendous. There's so much we can talk about. But why don't we start on the what you call the, quote, messy energy transition. You've uh, been writing about that for a while now, and you've also characterized this environment as SuperVol. Can you expand on that for us a little bit? Yeah. So, and it kind of led to my unretirement, you know, and so it's probably about 2018, 2019 when the ESG movement, which has always been part of investing, but it kind of ratcheted up to a point of really driving a lot of investment decisions. Certainly that's true in the US. We can see it in Europe. I'm sure Canada is impacted by it as well. Uh, you also had kind of the rise of just climate advocacy to a degree we'd not seen before. And these are all important topics. I, I consider myself supportive of a lot of decarbonization and the ESG movement, but I, I think it had gotten to the point where there's been a lot of misunderstanding about traditional energy. Partly that is the fault of traditional energy in that after 15 years of downcycle and an especially poor decade in the 2010s, I think people started taking energy for granted. Uh, I, I call it a messy energy transition because I think there's this mindset 
that if you simply kill traditional fossil fuel supply, but, but Robert, for, for, for some reason, only kill it in the US, Canada, and Europe, that this is going to somehow lead to decarbonization, when in fact, all it's going to lead to is a dependence on rest of world supply, and, and frankly, no real change to demand. And we end up with what we call a, a super vol commodity backdrop that I think is part and parcel to this sort of very messy energy transition. So the idea that Killing supply somehow leads to decarbonization. I would push back on as point number one. Point number two, killing supply only in these uh, friendlier areas, or at least friendly, and I'm, I'm an American, as you know, but friendlier from a, a U.S. or Canadian perspective, uh, I, I think it's going to lead to a lot of challenges on the supply side. So we're in a world where there's very limited spare capacity. Inventories are generally low. And I think demand would otherwise like to continue to grow. Now, it may not be able to grow, if we don't have enough supply. And that gets to the heart of the SuperVol kind of macro backdrop, which is prices are going to likely going to have to spike on a fairly regular basis to knock out demand and bring demand and supply back into balance. That's frankly a very disruptive and painful way to keep markets in balance, this spiking up. But once you spike up, and knock out demand, you end up with a, a softer economic period. And, and it may not be a recession. But we, we've seen this in the last just in the last 12 months. We got to 120 in oil last May, June, $50 a barrel gasoline cracks here in the United States. That translated to $5 a gallon gasoline. And with that, we've now seen a, a softer period of, of economic activity. And I think that's the kind of environment we're going to be in. So there are a lot of people who have adopted the super cycle language, and it is language I used early in my career. We called it the super spike at Goldman Sachs in the 2000s. I much prefer this super vol backdrop, and I think people have to be mindful of it. It may, it may result on average of sort of, quote, good prices and good earnings and cash flows, but I think it's going to be very, very choppy along the way. Uh, and it's something that I think investors and management teams all need to take into account. That's good. And so we're going to, and later in the podcast here, we're going to expand on that a little bit. There's been some talk about the, the, the hockey stick effect on EVs, and there's been some government policies most recently in the US, but also in Canada and Europe that will effectively outlaw the, the sale of, of ICE engines. You've done some pretty good math on that EV hockey stick and some of those underlying assumptions about energy, energy usage per capita and, and fuel efficiency. Can you walk us through that? So one of the things that I get, probably the biggest question I get from investors and even some companies is, uh, you can, okay, Arjun, you can say that there's some tight supply, there's limited spare capacity, and maybe there's not enough CapEx on, on that side of the equation, but isn't demand going away anyway? And, and maybe the IEA's net zero report, which I know we may get to, that is calling for a peak in 2019. So they say it already happened, even though 2022 and 2023 will be probably a new high in demand. But anyway, even if you don't believe 2019 was the peak, maybe it's 2025 or 2030. There's this assumption on the part of really not just investors, but I think people more broadly, policymakers in particular, that the peak in demand is inevitable. And I'd say there are two, I'm going to simplify this, two key drivers that would cause oil demand we're now talking about to peak. The first would be efficiency gains which simplistically is improvements in miles per gallon, if we're going to keep things straightforward. And then the second driver would be electric vehicles. And it's really been a feature of my research going back to the 2000s. The market tends to massively overestimate the translation of government corporate average fuel economy standards into actual mile per gallon improvement. And I'd, I'd say we miss, especially in the United States. This is true in China and other parts of the world. It's frankly true everywhere except 
perhaps Europe and Japan, that anywhere from 60 to 90% of the expected improvement in fuel economy is missed through real-world driving versus the sticker on your car when you buy it. And as much as anything from the SUVification, heavier cars and light trucks, uh, offsetting whatever gain would have happened uh, at the lighter end of the, the vehicle spectrum. And that, again, results in almost no material uplift to efficiency gain relative to just some year-in, year-out metric. And for anyone who thinks oil demand is going to peak this decade in the 2020s, it is going to be overwhelmingly driven by a pickup in fuel economy gains, which again, there is zero evidence that there is some uptick. There's again, a normal efficiency, but not an uptick. The second piece is the EV piece. And you know, Robert, I, I am actually a very happy electric vehicle driver. I've driven a Tesla for the past seven years and probably will never go back to driving a nice vehicle myself. But but I also happen to be a, a retired Goldman partner who can afford this car, who lives in a single family home where I can charge it at home. And I think the idea that there'll be growth in EVs is something I can believe in. But it's the idea that by 2030 or 2035 or even 2040, we can hockey stick up to where 80, 90, 95% of the global sales are going to be electric vehicles. It's, it's almost preposterous. Uh, it's going to be a challenge in terms of critical minerals and the battery supply chain. Uh, it's going to be a big issue in terms of affordability. And so if you do not live in a single family home, as I do, where you can charge at home, the idea that for people who live in apartments, for people who live in other parts of the world where the grid may not be as built out, I mean, it's just, it, it's, again, it's not that EVs are not going to grow. I think they will grow. It's just the, the idea that they can get to some very material share as quickly as people have it. Those would be my, and I'm simplifying here, those would be my two pushbacks on oil demand. And I, I you know, on my numbers, oil demand is likely to grow at least into the 2030s. And frankly, then the only reason it starts slowing down is because population growth globally looks like it's slowing down. But I, I wonder as the one to three billion people who are generally energy poor become hopefully economically and therefore energy richer than they are today, that you know, th there's no guarantee that oil demand will stop growing in 2035. It could be longer than that. So you did mention the IEA net zero report, and that was from, I think it was in May of 2021. It famously called for the end of coal and no new investment in oil and gas if the world was to meet the 2050. It was a pathway, but it was to meet the 2050 net zero goals. The timing was perfect. It was less than a year later, the world changed. Russia invaded Ukraine. So this report was essentially a modern day Economist cover a reprise from 1999. It marked the end of the IEA's role as an impartial arbiter calling supply and demand balls and strikes. But you know, the IEA is just one of many institutions that are tilting the playing field from European insurance carriers to financial institutions, government pension funds, etc. have all been very active in pushing this limited investment and fossil fuels usage. You've talked about the insurance in issue. And it's one that can be very problematic, and we've seen signs of it, uh, particularly in the oil sands here in Canada. So why don't you talk about why, when you tie this in with limited access to capital, it potentially represents an existential threat to the EMPs? Well, Robert, I think you, you laid it out very well about that IEA net zero report. And I think it ties into the insurance question that we definitely want to get to. So I th first of all, I'll say, you know, I've relied on IEA data for most of my career. And there are a lot of good people that work at the IEA. What I've been very concerned about is, is perhaps the head of the IEA 
has taken a particularly political angle to this net zero report so that it's not simply analysis and opinion, which everyone's entitled to. And there could be many paths for oil and natural gas and coal demand that could be very different than my own, just because I think it's going to grow. Who says that I am right? The issue is, is I think this was purposeful. I think this was uh, an example where it gets back to that ideology of if you kill fossil fuel supply, somehow that will magically lead to killing oil demand. And even though this report is fairly well caveated about it being a scenario, uh, and uh, you know, but it called for no new oil and gas project financing. And as you mentioned, it called for the end of coal. First on coal, I've been doing some work on coal to see what that would lead me to understand about oil. And to my shock and surprise, coal consumption globally is likely to grow for at least the next 10 years and probably much longer. We've essentially killed coal in the OECD, the United States, Canada, and Europe. And so now you're only left with China, India, and emerging uh, market-type demand growth. And it's cheap, it's affordable, it's reliable, 24-7, 365. There are a lot of jobs and taxes that come from it. I think coal is going to grow. But the line in the IEA report, that net zero report that says, to meet net zero, that would imply no new oil and gas fields. Again, they can make the excuse that it's a scenario and there are lots of other assumptions. That is the line that a lot of these insurance and banks have uh, uh, latched onto. It's a line that activists on the environmental side have latched onto and said, hey, to meet net zero, there should be no new oil and gas fine scene. And I, it, is a, it is a huge, huge issue. When you look at especially insurance markets, they are dominated by European companies. Europe is even more ideologically committed to this let's kill fossil fuel type argument. And I think it's a big issue for especially small and mid-sized companies. I think larger companies may be able to self-insure, but I think smaller and mid-sized companies and even the non-largest companies, so there could be still some bigger companies here, I think they're going to figure out how to handle this. Uh, what does industry need to self-insure? What are the alternatives to take? But I think this is the kind of thing that is going to present a challenge ultimately, maybe not in 2023 or 2024, but progressively over time to ensuring we have a healthy and robust supply chain on the oil and gas side. And I think the degree to which this spreads to capital markets, it's clearly spreading in Europe. I, I will hold out hope that US banks will show more sense but it all stems from this IEA net zero by 2050 report that called for essentially no oil and gas financing. And I just say that it's in the degree, it's in the we should be concerned about it category. And I think companies are going to need to start proactively thinking, how do they manage themselves if, in fact, some of this financing and insurance markets go? So when you consider the insurance issue and over the past number of years, there's just been a general lack, lack of access to capital. Is the present model the right one? And I'm talking about E&P. So in other words, if you were starting up today, what's the, what would be the ideal business model in your estimation? It's, it's such a great question. So I think, we, I think companies can't expect what has worked or what has existed throughout history the last decade, 20, 30, 50 years, 100 years for that matter, to be the model going forward. I, I think access to capital is going to be increasingly challenging. And so whether it's having good relationships with family offices, whether it's having good relationships with parts of the world or banks that are committed to what I will call a sensible energy evolution as opposed to this very ideological uh, energy transition, I, I think they're going to have to be more thoughtful about that and not simply take as a given that certain banks or certain capital markets or certain insurance companies are going to be there? What is the ability to access capital from other countries and regions? So I think there is going to be a split 
I think Europe essentially looks like it's on track to get excised from the world here. So to what degree can companies rely on, say, financing from the Middle East or parts of Asia that's going to be uh, possible or not possible to different degrees? There's clearly going to be an emphasis on having a stronger balance sheet than you otherwise would have, of self-financing cash flows. And I think all this is possible to a degree, but every company, especially newer companies and especially smaller companies, they're going to need some amount of startup capital and probably ongoing capital. I think I think companies have to just be more thoughtful about ensuring they deal with a consortium of banks and companies and don't take it for granted. And so even if you move away from some of these largest insurance companies, the Munich Rees of the world, the uh, HSBCs and INGs that have declared they're not going to support new oil and gas fields. Let's look at regional banks. So I live in the United States. Look what happened to Silicon Valley Bank, a very high profile uh, bank that went bust. Uh, it went bust for kind of crazy reasons. Their cash deposits left and they had treasury bonds that were you know too low of the yields that went against them. But a pretty basic situation a lot of the smaller companies are dependent on regional banks. So maybe not Silicon Valley Bank, but to what degree are those guys, banks going to be there? So I think this whole issue of who are your capital providers? How do you build up strong relationships? How do you not be dependent on the external market? These are all the kind of things, not just uh, small and mid-sized companies, but even larger companies are going to have to spend some time thinking about. So if the, the EPs are in a really unusual spot today. I, on one hand, you know, the balance sheets have never been better, at least certainly in my career, you know, it goes back 20 years or so. The years of underinvestment have really depleted Advantage Inventory, and particularly over the past seven years. Virtually every ENP is constricted spending, and they're loath to increase CapEx, even though there's ample room to do so, and the returns profile probably would support it. So look at it this way. With exploration mostly out of the equation, Companies need to find PDP, and they've been finding it mostly on Wall Street or Bay Street in Canada. And then also with the realization that oil will be around for decades to come, does this not suggest a coming stampede back into the long life 50-year ROIs of the oil sands? I think you laid it out very well, right? So the past decade, really poor returns on capital and terrible balance sheets. They've now spent the last two years, this is industry broadly, but especially US and Canadian companies, significantly improving profitability, paying down debt and paying out more in dividends, all good things. But we're a little bit at that inflection now where there is a need. If Since the world is going to have likely growing oil demand for there to be some amount of CapEx, the key is how do you not have, quote, too much CapEx? What is too much CapEx where you get to the battle days of overspending and cost inflation? No one wants to go back to those days. But the idea that you're going to have 30 or 40% reinvestment rates, that's probably unsustainably low, just as 120 and 130% cash flow reinvestment rates where you're, you were spending more CapEx than cash flow. That was unsustainably high. There's a point in between that is going to make sense. I think when we look at areas that look particularly interesting, I've been a big proponent of Canada's oil sands for the reasons you just articulated. It is long-lived. Yes, there's startup CapEx to happen, but we're at a time where CapEx is generally low. It's low in the oil sands. It's low everywhere. So we're not in an overheated environment. I think these are going to be some of the friendliest barrels in the world. Canada is a very friendly country. I, I would hope that the United States and, and Europe can realize that. And I actually think the carbon capture hub that is being pursued by Pathways Alliance is very important to taking away the one knock on Canada, which has been that it's higher emissions barrels. I think it's been maligned. Canada has been maligned as the, quote, dirtiest barrel in the world. I think that's become really lazy reporting and journalism. When you look at oil sands facilities, there's a handful of them 
that produce the bulk of Canadian oil. Compare that with all the number of wells that you have to drill in, say, a Permian Basin shale play. Or when you look at, for example, drilling for oil in, in Western Siberia and Russia or in Iran or other parts of the world. I mean, again, I think Canada is going to compete very favorably on an environmental grounds, let alone in terms of having large and what ultimately going to be competitive on a cost structure basis uh, type resources once you factor in the fact that when you start up an oil sands plant, it lasts for 25 or 30 years and possibly longer. So I, I do think the oil sands should be an important part of it. The thing that I cannot control or account for is getting the oil out of Canada. And while it's easy to point to some of the mistakes I think the U.S. has made in disallowing Keystone XL, it does seem like Canada has its own challenges with its own federal government in terms of ensuring there's a healthy environment to get export infrastructure out of Canada. And so I think Canada is going to have to figure out its own solutions. I don't know why it would only want to be dependent on the United States. I think uh, it's easy for me as an American to say, send the, send the oil west, send it east, diversify your sources. But I, I, So I think there's some fault here again with the U.S., but there's also some fault within Canada. And I think that transportation piece is a big piece to ensuring the oil sands become a viable and healthy component of our oil supply. Well, you're bang on there. You know, we haven't been able in Canada to organize a one-car parade as it pertains to egress. So it, um, hopefully we'll be able to figure that out. We have some things on the go. But uh, I want to just go back to the, the ESG because when we talked to energy companies from three years ago, there would have been a lot of pressure on scope one emissions and that sort of thing. And today, when we talk to our EMP clients, many of them are reporting having far less discussions with clients on, on ESG. So I'd be interested in your experience as a director of a super major, what that looks like at that end of the market and has the ESG, um, I'd say, a zaniness uh, somewhat abated. You know, so I, I'll speak about ESG generally. I unfortunately cannot speak about any company I'm specifically affiliated with, but let me talk about it generally because I think it's an important topic. So I'd, I'd say I think ESG has always been part of the investment landscape. My career has been going on for 31 years, and while we did not call it ESG, I definitely cared about the governance of my companies 30 years ago. I remember owning a refining company where we, we knew they were cutting costs, and so we were happy about that, but we were concerned that maybe they'd cut costs too much, and that could result in the plant not running safely, and it could have some environmental environmental issues. So we cared about all these metrics. We just didn't treat it like a religious mandate uh, or that that is the first order of business. It's part of the investment mosaic. So I, I'm definitely not anti-ESG. I kind of disagree with the kind of the right-wing pushback that we have here in the United States. But nor do I think you can have a sector and declare an entire sector as good or bad. I think it's going to be up to individual companies. In any sector, you can have good or bad uh, companies on these various ESG metrics. And again, it's a part of the investment mosaic. I think some, though, have taken ESG to mean anti-oil and gas and that I only care about climate. And that is the part of the ESG movement that I would push back hard upon. I think as oil industry profits improve, and they've improved a lot, and if the sector can continue to get back to being a more meaningful portion of the S&P 500, I think you're going to see some of this sort of virtue signaling part of ESG, the bad part of ESG that only says climate, you know, supposed climate concerns are all that I care about. And somehow that means just not investing in oil and gas companies in the United States and maybe Canada. That part of it, which I would push back hard upon, I think that is starting to fade. You know, so I'll get back to the original point. Should you run your company in an environmentally sound manner? Yes. Is society now saying you have to deal with scope on emissions? Yes. Is there benefits to having many different perspectives heard within management teams and boards? 
Absolutely. And does governance of a company matter? Of course it does. And so, you know, I hope we can get back to that where investors can just judge upon themselves. You know, do I want to invest in this company? How... Suncor is a great example. Investors have been very concerned about some of the operational downtime and safety challenges that they've had. I don't think that's because of ESG. I think they say, first of all, it's bad. And secondly, it's hurting their profits. <laughs> and so I think all companies are going to have to improve on these metrics and let's do it for substantive reasons. Let's move on into the energy cycle. And you know, one of the frameworks that I've always looked at it is as a nine-inning game. So the first three innings are coming off the trough. ENPs are deleveraging. Costs are low. Prices improving and a lot of that value accretes to the ENP. Whereas the middle third is when the OFS shines, utilization improves, pricing power improves, inflation picks up. Maybe a little bit of new capital formation, generalists are back in the market. And then the final third, you had run for the hills. There's degradation in returns, inflation's hot, new capital formations, abundant uh, supply picks up, and voila, you've got the end of the cycle. I know you've had you have a similar ish framework to assess where we are in the cycle. Uh, I'd love for you to describe that uh, first, and then second, uh, where do we sit? So I think it's very similar to what you described. I'll just say it's driven by the capital spending cycle. And so you get to the period where there's overinvestment, cost inflation, and a whole bunch of supply comes on. Then you get to the cost-cutting phases, which is usually actually kind of bearish to begin with. At some point, you bottom out when costs are low and activity is low. And then you realize you need new supply because demand isn't falling off a cliff. And the returns on capital cycle kind of follow that chart. So it's very similar to what you said. I think, and I'm personally a big baseball fan. I just don't know if that analogy is going to work this go round. Because as we started with, I call it super vol on purpose and not super cycle. So the baseball game analogy, which again, I think you correctly articulated, works in the super cycle type framework. And maybe to stick with the baseball game, baseball's not played this way. But if you kept going back and forth between the second inning and the fifth inning, that may be more the environment we're in. So I think because there's this constant fear, and not just by climate ideologues, but by the market more broadly, that demand at some point is going to peak and roll over, it is keeping supply on the sidelines. So I can, and we can all be say that it's unfortunate that some of these banks are becoming ideological about financing oil and gas, but quite frankly, regular investors are saying, I'm not so sure about the demand outlook. I think they're all too pessimistic, but that's their view. And so if we keep going back and forth between, again, a demand destruction pricing environment, but then when it cools, it's probably the equivalent of going back and forth between the second and fifth inning. And I, th I think that's more the type of mindset people should have. And, and, and I don't even want to quite call that a trading framework because I think it's possible to take a 10-year view and just say, I'm going to try and catch some of those lows. And when I look back 10 years from now, will I be happy or unhappy I owned oil and gas? I think we'll end up happy. It is how I personally invest in the sector, try and buy the lows. But I think this will be a, one of the better performing sectors looking back over 10 years. But I think so I think we go back and forth. Uh, and what would it take to get back to the overheated environment? It would probably take people believing that demand is going to keep growing, which I think it will, but people are far from believing in that. It's probably people thinking that the returns are going to always stay high and then start to invest accordingly. But again, where's that capital coming from? Who's supporting it? Uh, so uh, it's going to be a different cycle than we've had historically. So that's interesting. So then how does a company, so companies have to think about their valuation in a much different way, because if the prevailing perspective is that this is a cigar butt and there's two or three puffs left on it, it's hard to ascribe 
big cash flow multiples to those stories. So what is the, I, I guess we talked about it a little bit earlier, but I'll maybe ask it in a different way. What's the best way for EMPs to actually create value uh, given, uh, let's let's stipulate the super vol cycle is what we're seeing, and we're not going to get big multiples. What's the best way for an EMP to create value in this environment? You know, I I love the question, and I love actually exactly how you framed it. Uh, and I think uh, what the kind of companies you're talking with and advising should feel good about speaking with you because I think you actually understand it very well. We're probably not going to have an environment where the multiples really expand here. I mean, they they might maybe I'll be wrong about that. But usually volatility is not something where you get higher multiples, you usually get lower multiples. And again, if there's going to be a constant fear every time you know prices spike that it's going to fall back or that the peak demand scenario is material, whatever the concerns are, that probably does not result in major multiple expansion. But can a company still outperform? So I'd say the number one objective for any company should be, I will say as an American, to outperform the S&P 500. That is the goal. And to outperform the S&P 500 does not mean high multiple or low multiple. It means your stock with dividends does better than the broader index. And if that's the TSE in Canada and whatever it is in the rest of the world. So that's the number one objective. And so it's about continuing to make good investments. Uh, it's about perhaps um, occasionally selling assets. I don't think it's any more about production growth. So companies might want to at times grow and at times shrink. I think it's about being disciplined with some amount of that cash flow going back to shareholders via dividends and stock buybacks. I think it is about being opportunistic uh, and trying to go where people are not. So in the US context, again, the Permian Basin has been very hot. It's been uh, you know the place to be. Um, I think any company there should be happy to be there. But maybe there are other opportunities for companies uh, to, to look at. I think in Canada, I, I think it's generally underinvested in right now. So it's a pleasure to speak to you as someone who's probably more of an expert on opportunities within Canada. The oil sands we already talked about, maybe the offshore comes back. But I think it's about being opportunistic. I think it's it's about no long, stop worrying about the multiple. You're trying to outperform your market. And if you outperform, and if you outperform every year, I, I promise investors are going to come back. Investors cannot resist missing stocks that outperform. So I would hope companies, and certainly this is what I tell the companies that I know, your goal is to outperform the market. It isn't necessarily to get a high multiple and stop obsessing about it because what it's causing them to do is to be frozen, to say, I have a low multiple, so I can't do this or I can't do that. Try and better your company. You know, it's not about multiple arbitrage. That's what hedge fund, hedge funds are about multiple arbitrage, not companies. So invest in projects that over time are going to generate good returns. And I think you will be rewarded. And some of that, again, should go back to shareholders via dividends and stock buybacks. So I'll, I'll finish on this question on, on this uh, component of our chat, Arjun. And it pertains to, I guess, the, have, have the EMPs finally found religion as it pertains to good returns on capital. Because historically, it hasn't really been a, a thing, quote unquote, for EMPs. It's been production growth, cash flow growth, reinvestment, you know, 150 to 200% of cash flow and keep growing that production. Have they found religion and can investors actually believe that the current crop of EMPs that have survived have now, now understand that their returns on capital have to be equivalent or better to the widget maker in an adjacent sector or a segment of the S&P 500 in order to attract capital. Well, ironically enough, I think religion has found them. 
So if if there if too, if so much of the world are climate zealots, and I, it, that sounds disparaging when I say that, but I'm talking about the ideology of uh, I don't want to invest in fossil fuels anymore. I, I, I think I think that's going to force a discipline on companies whether they have found the quote unquote religion about returns or not. Uh, I think that'd be point number one. So so some of the idea of hey the multiples are low. People don't want to invest in this sector. You have some of these banks and insurance companies going away. All those things are ultimately going to be positive for profitability because it means you won't be able to have as overheated an environment as you have in the past. And that's would be point number one. I think point number two, though, is a trickier one. And it gets a little bit back to your previous question is different companies have different qualities of inventory and ability to not have to invest and I think those companies generally are in better position to possibly invest and continue to expand their their advantaged inventory life. But if you do not have many years of running room left, you may have to do things or, or you may have to decide you're liquidating or selling. You may not be able to sell if no one wants you. You may have to decide to liquidate again. I, I know of, I think I know of no companies that have ever actually done that in the public space. So then it's a question of how, how can or will you be opportunistic? So you, when we talk about you know, having religion, quote unquote, about returns, that all presumes you have a running room that you then are not forced to do things. And we're starting to see that in the US. You're starting to see some amount of MA activity. The prices, oil prices have generally been robust enough that companies have been able to say, hey, the free cash yield on this asset is still good and so forth. Um, but I, you know, I, th- I think it's going to be very company specific. And you're going to still try and favor. Either who are the ones with the better acreage and inventory life or the ones that's underappreciated, or who takes advantage of the times where there is distress or what have you and picks off something that people didn't see and can and can get there that way. But but I think the returns discipline is going to be forced on these companies, whether they want it or not. That is probably ultimately a good thing for that to be the case. I've got two more questions here, and I think we can wrap it up. But given what we just said, doesn't this point towards halcyon days for the OFS sector? I, I, I think you know. I think the sector broadly. I would never say that. Let's just say it's going to be a bull market for the next two years or some period of time or whatever time frame you want to make. I would never say it only favors one part of the industry. I think the industry goes together. So there are times where the majors are the better ones to own. There are times when EMPs, services, refiners. And so forth. I, again, I would expect them all to, at times, do well, if you will. I, I think on the the OFS side, you know, if we're not going to have a major capex boom like we did in the two thousands, then one might argue that maybe there is some upward limit to how well they do. On the other hand, and I agree with a, something you just said, which is, well, they're not allowed to invest in new capacity either. Then that probably suggests they can maintain pricing power as well. I'm sure it can be a very good period of time for uh, the OFS sector, you know, in gen, you know, generally speaking. But they're also going to face the same issues of the volatility. If we're going to go to demand destruction pricing and then come off of it, I, I think from being practical standpoint, even if the earnings and cash flows hold up, I think you might expect the sector to trade with that same volatility that the upstream guys do. So I, 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 I don't like just one subsector. I think there are plenty of good companies across different parts of the energy value chain. And then it goes down to which management teams do you like better and trust better? Who can take advantage of dislocations that occur? Who's either got acreage running room for an upstream company or perhaps pricing power or sustained pricing power as an OFS company? Again, I would expect there to be parts of all of the value chains within energy to do quite well in the coming decade. Final question. 
What is the right strategy for EMPs regarding ESG? There's a couple examples from the majors. We've got Chevron, perhaps on one hand, they've basically said, look, we're going to defend our dividends. Investors can allocate that into renewables, for instance, uh, if they so choose. And then at the other end, we've got BP, and they've totally ripped the face off their investors by being the dumb money at the table buying renewables at the top of the market and dumping oil assets at the bottom of the market. What's the right path here? I think for EMPs in, in, in general, I think the first order of business is you have to be profitable in your base business. And that is going to be oil and gas. And I think to be profitable, that in part means ensuring you have running room. If you don't have running room, at times it might mean shrinking your company. And then perhaps if there's a downturn or a pullback for whatever reason, using your strong balance sheet to pick up stuff at the lower points of the cycle. I and mean, that's not a, that can't perfectly happen every time, but I think it's being constantly managing your oil and gas portfolio well. Part of managing it well does include some ESG type characteristics such as basic health, safety, and environment. And again, that's been a challenge for uh, a company here or there of just their traditional health, safety, and environment. Is that going well? It absolutely needs to go well to be a profitable company, never mind for the humanitarian reason of not injuring your workforce, as an example. I think there is going to be a requirement to be zero emissions on scope one. And this is more of a U.S. issue of having near zero methane flaring, venting, and leaks. And it's probably a little bit of an issue in Canada. It's a bigger issue in the U.S. I think that is the ESG responsibility of companies. Governance, how much does management own of a, of a stock? All those kind of things are always the case. And I would want all companies to have a range of views represented amongst their management team and their board of directors so that they're not just trying to be drill, baby, drill in the U.S. context or not being able to calibrate shale well IRRs to full cycle returns, which, again, huge problem in the U.S. shale industry. So I would want to see diversity of skill set amongst boards and management. But that, to me, is a ESPG responsibility. If your question is, in part, should they get into new and different businesses, if they have some competitive advantage, then yes, by all means, go and do it. In the US, we've seen a company like Oxy with EOR experience. They're trying to build out a carbon capture business. We can debate whether that's going to be successful or not, but at least it's a logical adjacency. There's an offshore company called Talos, which has some offshore Gulf of Mexico fields, also thinking about carbon capture. Again, that sort of makes sense for them. Valero is a refining company that has some renewable diesel investments, a logical adjacency for Valero. So where there is some logic to newer businesses, by all means, go for it. But have your basic health, safety, and environment go well. Uh, have diversity of skill set. Have good governance, zero scope one emissions, near zero methane. That to me is the core ESG responsibility of a company. And I believe if you pursue those core responsibilities, you have a better chance to have sustainably good profitability and a good stock price. I do not think any traditional oil and gas company should have to get into new businesses. And in fact, the world should want more Canadian oil, more US oil. These should be the last barrels produced in whatever year that last barrel is produced. I think it's going to be. Far longer than people think. But even if you think it's going to be sooner, why wouldn't you want it to be Canadian and U.S. oil? And I would just say as a final comment, when people say, hey, I'm against Arctic and I'm against unconventional oil, what are they saying? They're saying they're against Canada and Alaska. Is Alaska not part of the United States? Is Canada not one of the friendliest countries in the world? I'll speak as an American. Is this not our closest ally? Why would we let people say you cannot have Canadian oil or, or Alaskan oil? It makes absolutely no sense from a geopolitical standpoint. Forget about the US and Canada. If you're someone in India, 
in rural Africa, in these parts of the world that are still developing, why should they be dependent? Why tell me, Robert? Why should they be dependent on Russian oil or Iranian oil? And maybe they're better friends with those countries. Who am I to judge them as an American? But I'm just saying that I think they should have the opportunity to have our barrels, both from Canada and the U.S., exported to them if, in fact, they want it. If their countries are developing, I think our barrels should be the environmentally strongest, the toughest labor standards, but ultimately the most profitable. Tax dollars going to our countries here in the United States and Canada. Worker. Wages going to our employees here in the United States and Canada. I think these should be the best barrels produced in the world for however long uh, they continue to be demanded. Well, Arjun, we could talk for another hour, but I've already pushed you past what I promised that we were going to do today. So we're out of time. I thought we could finish with a, a quick lightning round of sorts. What's a recent book you've read that you'd recommend? A recent book. So right now, I am feeling the need to ramp up on coal. It, it is an area that gets almost no attention. Uh, It is something that when I look at the rest of the world, now that we've eliminated here in the U.S. and and to some degree Canada and Europe, it is going to. So I'm reading a book, Coal in India, (laughs) to to actually better understand what is going on uh, with the coal businesses around the world. It is a fascinating area. I think there's a lot to learn in the oil and gas space about what has happened to the coal sector, about the free cash yields they have, about their having long ago realized they cannot count on external capital markets, that they can't even count on external insurance providers. And so I'm actually looking at this in the context of India to understand how that country is going to develop. And I think it's actually been a pretty interesting book. And I'm going to give a second one. It is Siddharth Kara's Cobalt Red. It is about uh, what is going on in the Democratic Republic of Congo, the challenges with uh, what is it's really actually very sad child labor, forced labor, uh, and some of the very challenging situations in the metals and mining side and the minerals extraction side there. Uh, this is not to me a knock on EVs. It's a knock on us pretending that these problems don't exist in the rest of the world and needing to confront it. Uh, and I think I would recommend these two books. I know you're a golfer. So the best golf course you recently played was, and what's on the bucket list for a course you need to play this year? So it's, it's a cliche. My son goes to school in St. Andrews. And so we've, uh, we recently played the old course and I, I, it is st- probably my favorite course in the world in part because it's such a famous course and in part because I love playing it with my son, but I'm going to give a new one in Scotland's Dumbarney links. Uh, it's, j- it's still in the kingdom of Fife. It's, it's near the town of Levin, uh, Scotland, just uh, south of uh, St. Andrews. I would recommend that. It's a newer course, Dumbarney Links. I've actually never played Pebble Beach. That is a course I need to get to, uh, obviously in the U.S. West Coast. And so that'll be on my bucket list. I'd I'd say Augusta. uh, That's probably going to be tougher to get onto. At least Pebble Beach is accessible to the public. So I'm going to put that as the, on the realistic bucket list type. Where can listeners find you on the internet to read your blog or tweets or otherwise find you for business purposes? Yeah. So I am on Twitter. It's at Arjun and Murdy. My blog is for free on Substack. It's arjunmurdy.substack.com. I post all this stuff to LinkedIn as well. And part of the mission is energy education and reducing energy illiteracy. And so it's just a perspective. I'm not saying my view is right. But I get very frustrated by what in the U.S. context comes across as the far left. But I also think the far right also has got its challenges. I hate to use the term moderate because I have actually passionate views about a lot of things. But it is meant to be a pragmatic ground uh, that uh, you know hopefully leads to a better energy evolution era than we're currently on track to have. Arjun, it's, it's been a pleasure. I wish we had more time. But thank you so much for joining us on Canadian Equities today. Robert, I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me on. 
Note that this podcast is not making an investment recommendation on any companies discussed. We welcome your comments on today's episode or any other episode. Connect with us at acumencapital.com.